Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's Saturday, September 16th. We are going to be doing the Saturday countdown. Usually it's the Sunday countdown, but for scheduling's sake, I guess you could say, and for me having more free time today, we're doing the countdown today. Tomorrow, lots of NFL games. You know, (laughs) keeps me busy. Keeps me busy. My Packers are looking okay, and I want to watch some football kind of take tomorrow off. So, Anyways, today I want to do the countdown and I want to talk about, okay, well, let's go backwards a little bit. Obviously, over the last week or so, it looks like mainstream Democrats are finally freaking out about Biden's age. Now, even David Ignatius, who is kind of like the Biden whisperer in the media, big Biden defender, he even even put out a piece saying that he loves what Biden's done, Biden's great, but he probably shouldn't run again. And... I mean, it's too late now, right? Also, it would be a huge gamble at this late in the game to go, oh, we're going to put in Josh Shapiro or Gretchen Whitmer or whatever, because it hasn't been tested. It's so close. You don't know our our voters going to feel the same way about a Josh Shapiro as they would a Joe Biden. I don't know. Unfortunately, right now, our sample is small. We know that Biden beat Trump in 2020 in a closer-than-we-liked election, most votes in history, and we don't know what would happen if someone else ran. Obviously, I think we know what would happen if Kamala Harris was the presidential candidate. I think turnout would be lower. I'm sorry to say it, but I think it's true. She just doesn't have a constituency. But anyways, yes, people like me and a lot of people on the left and the right for the last year or two has said Biden should be a one-term president, right? He, He beat Trump. Have a good four years and then pass the torch. But of course, we know Kamala Harris is not popular and things are complicated. So now it's too late. And I do think that this is going to be an issue for the Democrats. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw Biden in Vietnam last week. He mixed up John Wayne comparisons and old stories. And they had to play the Oscar music when you've been talking too long. And they had to move him off stage. I mean, I think he's still mentally there in terms of signing papers and meeting with leaders and all this stuff, but he's clearly lost many steps. But this episode is not me just bashing Biden, because I also think the Republican impeachment inquiry, potentially a government shutdown coming, Tommy Tuberville's bullshit in the Senate, all this type of stuff, I think this is going to hurt badly Republicans. So I still think Biden has a kind of a coin flip chance of being reelected. But what I want to do today is instead, I want to do a countdown where we look at my top 10 Democrats that I think would be good presidential candidates maybe in 2028. So I want to say we could call this my top 10 Democrats on the presidential bench, right? Little spoiler, uh, Kamala Harris is not on this list. Sorry, not sorry. But anyways, here are my top 10 Democrats on the bench. Obviously, we are going to start with number 10. And number 10 is maybe a controversial one, but it's Raphael Warnock, right? He, as we know, won two consecutive Senate runoffs in a prime swing state, which is Georgia. That was in 2020, 2022. We have to remember that he beat Kelly Loeffler in 2020, kind of right before January 6th, right? That was kind of, I think, the nail in the coffin for all the chaos that we saw. But he obviously runs against her. I don't know if you guys remember the Kelly Loeffler debate where she's like, radical uh, radical Raphael Warnock, 
Radical Raphael Warnock, right? Obviously didn't work. She was a weak candidate, a corrupt candidate, a problematic candidate, Trump sycophant candidate, and he won. And then he, again, in 2022 against Herschel Walker, wins. And yeah, I mean, I think a pair of runoffs in those races does mean he's maybe, maybe ready for prime time for a general election, whatnot. Now, I guess my one criticism or just to play devil's advocate would be he went against two atrocious candidates in very important elections, so voter turnout was really high. Also, I don't know if it's a major victory to say you beat Herschel Walker or Kelly Loeffler, one of the least popular senators. So those, I think, were very special circumstances, also runoff elections. I don't know. We would have to really test him in a general before we just say, oh, this is the guy. But look, he's... I like some of the things he's done as a senator. He worked with Ted Cruz, which you deserve a Purple Heart, a Gold Star, whatever, if you're going to work with Ted Cruz. But the two did introduce legislature to um, prioritize the building of Interstate 14, which would connect Macon, Augusta, Augusta sorry, and Columbus in Georgia to Texas. And Warnock had said the interstate would be helpful for our military installations as well as for the economy in the region. Um, it was ultimately approved. He's, he's really big on infrastructure. He's also into raising the minimum wage. Um, he's big on criminal justice reform, opposes the death penalty. He's, he's pretty, he's pretty moderate, give or take. And he worked on, for example, another bipartisan health bill with Marco Rubio, passed in the Senate in 2022. Either way, I think this is a pretty sensible guy. He's he's quite religious, but he's also pro-choice. So I, I think he could do well. But again, we're going to have to just wait and see because, of course, the election that he won both times was kind of a unique circumstance. Anyways, number nine is Pete Buttigieg. A lot of people would probably have him higher. And there's reasons why people would have him higher. He has been one of the only people that actually goes on TV a lot in the Biden administration and articulates what they are trying to do. Honestly, like I think he would actually be a better like press secretary or communications director than he is transportation secretary. But that's a whole other can of worms that we're not going to open up today. But I do think he is smart, obviously Rhodes Scholar, veteran. I, I do think he's very smart, right? And mayor of South Bend, I don't know if that's something to really say, gives you a lot of experience to be president. But he, he does look and sound presidential. Obviously, his personal life, I'm, I'm always hesitant if there's a percentage of Americans that would vote for the first openly gay president. I think that is definitely something that would hurt him a little bit. But I, I guess one could hope that the country would allow that, but I'm not 100% sure. I also don't think that his time as transportation secretary has been that great. To me, it seemed like he wanted a cabinet position, and that was the one they gave him, but he hasn't gone above and beyond in actually doing what the role requires. A lot of reports about how, you know, when we had the airline chaos, I don't know which one because there were so many over like 2021, 2022, he was kind of slow to respond, and he just tried to give tips on how this always happens and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't, wasn't particularly great. Also, we obviously had the train derailment in Ohio, East Palestine, Ohio. Trump was there on the ground before him. 
I, I know, so you don't have to tell me. I know it's more optics than policy, but he just seems detached a little bit from the job and maybe a little overwhelmed with the job, and it's made it very able for right-wingers and the right-wing media to demonize him and attack him, and they've done so. And, of course, there's homophobia there. Like, I, re- I remember when he took, what, paid parental leave or whatever when they had a kid, that type of stuff. I know they did it because it's a, you know, gay marriage or whatever, but still, I mean, this guy, this guy, I think on paper is presidential, but I'm not totally sure if he could actually win a general election. We do have to remember, though, that in 2020, he did win the first two major primaries, Iowa and New Hampshire, but then things changed as the party consolidated slowly but surely around Joe Biden. So Pete Buttigieg, even if he doesn't become president or something, I do think he has a long career in politics still ahead. Now, moving on, Gavin Newsom is number eight. I think people would probably put him up a lot higher as well. I am not. But first, I think the Washington Post notes something that kind of describes him well. It says here in quotes, he's gone to great lengths to build his national profile in recent months while pushing his party towards a more in-your-face approach to talking on Republicans. Sorry, to taking on Republicans. It's easy to see how that message might play well. Um, first off, the positives, I do respect his willingness to be more combative and meet Republicans where they're at and take them on face to face and kind of just dismantle a lot of the conspiracies and falsehoods and talking points. I think it's important that he goes on Sean Hannity, for example, and the two actually seem to have a pretty respectful rapport and he can actually go on there and make some valid points. Sean Hannity will try to say something and he gets a bit combative and pushes back He's straight-faced, he talks with facts, and there's not many other Democrats that go outside of CNN and MSNBC, so I think that's very important. Um, I also think that he just looks the part, which is still something that people do like, obviously, and that makes him electable enough. He's also moderate enough on a national level. Like He's not someone I see as a radical, a radical guy by any means. I also like, and this is one that could either, excuse me, could either turn people off or be something to respect him, but he actually had a pretty good rapport with Donald Trump when Trump was president. And I always found that kind of interesting. It's surprising in a lot of ways, but you know, when the fires happened in California, he did work pretty closely with President Trump and Trump actually speaks kind of respectfully of him, which is always interesting to me. And again, that might not be something you want to brag about if you're Newsom or Trump, but they did actually seem to be able to work together when things needed to be done. And they could at least develop somewhat of a rapport with one another. And to be honest, I actually like that in politics. Like, for example, Ron DeSantis wouldn't even meet this recent time with Joe Biden after the recent hurricane. I I don't like that type of stuff because to me, it's just exhausting and somewhat pointless. So yeah, I, I, I think that those are the positives. The reason why I'm torn on Gavin Newsom, though, is that I find him, well, too perfect and politician-like and just too cookie-cutter, in a sense. But that's not really the big reason. My bigger thing here is that California still has a huge deficit issue. Housing costs are going up much higher than a lot of other parts of the country. Obviously, climate is a serious issue in California. Inequality is growing. Homelessness is growing. And he has spent a lot of time and a lot of his war chest kind of traveling across the country, attacking Republicans on a national level. He's done some events in Iowa. He's put out ads in Florida. 
And it seems like he's almost already running a campaign to be president, even though he's not. And he's focusing more on national politics, national issues. And it seems like sometimes he's a little detached from what's going on in the state. And that's something that I've seen happen time and time again. There's a good Atlantic article. I'll, tr I'll try to link it in the bio. And it talks about how a lot of his money and campaign money and from and um, super PAC money has been used on national causes. And I just kind of like a, a governor to govern more than just, you know, attack Ron DeSantis and put out anti-Trump ads and all that stuff. Okay, moving on, though, to number seven. This is Andy Bashir, who is the current governor of Kentucky. Before we go too far into supporting him and before I say that, you know, he'd be great, I do think we need to see if he can get reelected in November of this year. I think it's November 7th, 2023. He won in 2019. Obviously, I probably don't need to tell you guys, but I will anyways. Kentucky's not exactly a blue state. So it's really fascinating to see someone like Andy Bashir running the country pretty pragmatically, pretty moderately, kind of doing some good things for Democrats and some good things for Republicans. And from my understanding, he's relatively popular in the state. So that is good to see. But I think seeing how he does in a couple months, if he gets reelected or not, it will be a major stress test to see if a Democrat can win in a state like Kentucky. Now, the one thing that's kind of linked with this that has to be addressed is that Mitch McConnell's in decline, right? He's one of Kentucky's senators. Basically, in Kentucky, if, say, McConnell were to resign, the governor is the one who can pick a replacement until the next election. Obviously, Bashir is a Democrat, so I wonder if this will put pressure on the state and state Republicans to get Bashir out of office so that if something did happen to Mitch McConnell, it can be a Republican appointing a replacement and not Bashir. Now, I've heard reports that Bashir might, because he does seem quite pragmatic, maybe he would pick a Republican, a moderate Republican anyways, just to kind of go along with this and try not to cause too much chaos. But again, I think this will be interesting to see. And so after that November election, we'll know more about Bashir's future. But what I will say is that his dad was also governor of Kentucky. So I think there's some name recognition to bring in there, which is fine. But ABC News brings up some other points. It writes here in quotes, Bashir has emphasized his work helping Kentucky recover from a string of natural disasters and the COVID-19 pandemic while shrugging off nationalized labels. That go-everywhere approach, even Republican critics acknowledge, helps burnish his reputation as both an executive and an empathizer. And I think that's a good way to put it. And he's had a hard-to-define position on a lot of ideological issues, which I think actually is something I like because, as I've told you guys, I have somewhat contradictory views. I think all of us do in a sense. And he's, for example, he, he opposes strict abortion restrictions, obviously. He's legalized medical marijuana, and he's looking at allowing voting rights for felons, with exceptions, of course. But he's also advocating for certain tax cuts and raising state trooper pay. All things, I mean, honestly, all of that sounds good to me, to be completely honest. And from my understanding, he's done pretty well from this, uh, for the state economy, actually. Um, that ABC article, again, it writes here, he's also portrayed himself as a strong steward of the economy, celebrating a $5.8 billion investment by Ford, announced in 2021, while boasting of an unemployment rate at or below 3.9 for the longest stretch in state history. So I, I think this guy, I mean, again, we don't know on a national level how he does, but I think this is more the type of person that we need to look at to be the next candidate. 
he knows how to balance budgets, but also protect women's abortion rights, but also work with the other side and get some respect from them. And I think that's something that we need to see continued if we want any sensibility here. Now, I know less about number six here, but number six is Sherrod Brown. And uh, since 2007, he has been the senior senator, I guess you could say, from Ohio. And he's 70 years old, so definitely not a spring chicken by any means, but I, I do like him. And I, I mean, just on a side note, I find it fascinating that in the same state you have a Sherrod Brown and a J.D. Vance. I liked Tim Ryan, actually, who obviously J.D. Vance ended up beating, which was too bad. But yeah, Sherrod Brown is cool. He, from my understanding, he really appeals to both progressives and moderates. And obviously that this is a swing state, right? And he said here in quotes, when we talk about new faces and fresh blood and what it means to be a Democrat in the traditional sense, I check all the boxes. Another um, Democratic Party strategist has said that Brown has figured out the secret sauce in winning a tough state like Ohio, which has been trending toward the GOP. And there was a good, there's a good documentary called The American Factory, and it was basically about an old American factory that got shut down as jobs went overseas and a Chinese firm that made glass bought it up and they ended up tr and they brought back a lot of the workers and so the workers had to then work under a Chinese company but it was mainly American workers long story short they felt like they were being exploited the Chinese tried to bring in some of their business practices which obviously were illegal in the state and in the United States and it caused a lot of division and chaos and it was an interesting look into just kind of the dying middle America factory energy. And I just remember Sherrod Brown was one of the ones really fighting this Chinese company from owning this factory. And he really wanted to focus on bringing better pay, better hours, better protections to factory workers. And I think in a sense, that is really an appeal. Like say what you want about J.D. Vance as well. And I think he's, I, I think he's an, he's acting as a character right now. But there are things that J.D. Vance also, he's more populist. Like he also believes in somewhat worker rights and bringing back jobs. And I think that's probably the part of the secret sauce here and Sherrod Brown does understand that so I I like Sherrod Brown maybe he should stay in Ohio though because Ohio has also gotten kind of crazy in a sense and so maybe we need someone to counterbalance JD Vance staying there number five Chris Murphy the Atlantic had a good article on him recently where it talked about how he he seems to have views that kind of intersect where Donald Trump meets Bernie Sanders and obviously, he is mainly known for his activism about guns, right? Like, that's where you all think of him. But yeah, he is a senator from Connecticut, been one of the main guys fighting for tougher gun restrictions, background checks. He's worked on some bipartisan deals, not enough, but he's been, he's a really pragmatic, sensible, good guy who's been highly involved for quite a while now. And I also have found, like, even though he was kind of a corporatist, lawyer, elite, he's somewhat becoming more of an empathetic populist that is trying to understand the anger on the right and try to find a way to bring people into the Democratic Party. And this was all prevalent to me after Rich Men North of Richmond came out. And The Atlantic had a good piece that writes, Senator Murphy, a liberal Democrat from, uh, from Connecticut, winced at the anti-welfare and anti-tax tropes in the song, which are hardly new to country music, but he was more struck by the anguish encoded in a haunting song by an artist who struggles with alcoholism and depression and who lives in a camper in rural Virginia. 
The article then talks about how Murphy is also a provocateur in a lot of ways. The article writes here, in July, he tweeted that there are a lot of social conservatives who believe in populist economic policies, and it would be a good idea to have those people in part of the Democratic left coalition and accept a bit more intramovement friction on culture issues as a consequence. And then he also talks about how the Democrats' challenge extends beyond just white people. He mentions how Latino working class voters have distanced themselves from Democrats in recent elections. The black working class, which was once the core of the Democratic Party, is starting to fracture as well. He says in, in an interview I saw, the anguish in that song was voiced by a rural young white man. But that anguish would sound familiar if you were listening to a young African-American in Hartford, Connecticut, talking about a system set up to enrich economic elites. So I'm not totally on board with all of Murphy's policies by any means, but I, I do want someone who is, doesn't want to point fingers. He doesn't want to say, oh, those Republicans or, oh, those Trump supporters. He's actually trying to say, like, at the end of the day, we all live in this country. We need to find out why there's so much anger, depression, disconnect, and we need to find a way to bring people in. And that's rare, I think, sometimes when you get into elite circles in either party. And so I think he, I mean, he's like 50, I believe. So he's going to be around for a while, but hopefully he goes for higher office. He has no intention right now, but, you know, time will always tell. Okay, number four is Josh Shapiro. He beat the insane Doug Mastriano to be governor of Pennsylvania. He was attorney general, winning, the elect winning his re-election last in 2020, defeating the Republican with 50.9% of the vote. And yeah, he's just kind of a pragmatic Biden-esque Democrat. But a lot of people called him, he was the kind of shatter the glass and pull the emergency brake type of candidate in 2022. When, yeah, when you had Doug Mastriano, who was a kind of a white nationalist QAnon type of guy running. And he won by like almost 15 points, which was surprising because part of me was just feeling existential dread going, let's just watch. Doug Mastriano is going to kick his ass or something here. Thank God he didn't. But basically, he, he did a lot of decent things while he was attorney general. He, he, but they were also things that crossed party lines. Like he did work to combat the opioid epidemic crisis, whatever you want to call it, focused on gun violence as well. Um, he was also involved in investigating all the abuse, the sexual abuse that was perpetuated by members of the Catholic Church. Um, in 2018, he released the results of this grand jury report. The report alleged the sexual abuse of more than um, 11 hundred children yeah by over 300 priests and it actually led a lot of similar investigations in places like Missouri by then the attorney general Josh Hawley and he also was someone that was actually pretty tough on crime as well which I think is why a lot of moderates liked him in the 2022 midterms he was never one of these defund the police guys he really looked to invest more in law enforcement and uh, he also came out in support of marijuana legalization in 2019. And uh, he also did a lot of um, crackdowns on, I guess you could say, the distribution of blueprints for 3D printed firearms. So this was a guy that I liked because he recognizes that times are changing and he wasn't some like, you know, hardline right winger on crime. But he also understood that you still need people to trust the monopoly of security that the government needs to have in a society where laws are followed. And I, I like him, and 
you know, I mean, he, he's one of the people that usually comes up talking about someone that should run uh, for president, especially if Biden gets old or, you know, there's any issues. They always say he's the guy that should be the emergency replacement. Probably too late for that, but I think we'll see more of him as well. I think he has a long career ahead of him. Moving on, my top three really could be in any order. I got really, really stuck on how to rank some of these, but I did put Gretchen Whitmer at number three. I still wish to this day, I lament this, that she was not Joe Biden's running mate. If Gretchen Whitmer was right now the vice president, there would be a lot less worry about Biden stepping down and his running mate taking over, right? So, uh, (laughs) yeah, I I really wish that he had a Ben running mate. But anyways, that didn't happen. So I like Gretchen Whitmer because she has shown that her side of the party is more interested in pragmatism. And obviously that we saw in 2020 with Biden's nomination as well. But she kind of follows that trend to me because she is well-liked, well-regarded, well-respected, except for the guys obviously that tried to kill her. In 2020 or whatever, that whole plot to kill her. But anyways, other than that, she's the female governor of a swing state who has two, sorry, has won two campaigns by about 10 points. And she is popular, obviously not the white nationalists or whatever that tried to get her killed. But other than that, she's pretty well respected. And she's actually done a lot to protect women's rights after the Roe decision as well. The Atlantic has a good piece on her that's mainly about how she's not running for president in 2024, even though people want her to. So I, I won't get to that part. But the Atlantic notes and quotes, she is deft at pivoting from specific issues to the broader theme of personal freedom, particularly re- relating to her, her signature cause, abortion access. Then there's some interviews with Mike Dugan, the longtime mayor of Detroit. He told the Atlantic in quotes here, you could drop Gretchen Whitmer anywhere and she can connect immediately. You could be sitting here in Detroit, up in Marquette, talking about mining. She listens intently. People feel like a bond with her. Across the state, the article continues, Whitmer is known affectionately as Big Gretch. Also, I mean, one of her main slogans is to fix the damn roads. She focuses on self-protection, individual rights, infrastructure, and trying to be the governor for everyone. I think she's got a lot of, like where, where she got criticism was for COVID and the lockdowns or whatever at the beginning. She was, I guess, seen going to her vacation house during the lockdown. So she got a lot of criticism for that. Then you had the plot to kill her. Trump has obviously attacked her on a national level, which should surprise no one. But generally speaking, she's been a good governor in a place that, I mean, parts of Michigan, especially like the UP, it's a, there's some pretty damn conservative areas there. So the fact that she's done pretty well is is kind of nice to see in a sense. Moving on, number two, Jared Polis. Uh, the Colorado governor, to me, makes sense. He's kind of like Shapiro and Whitmer. In November of last year, he also won re-election by like 20 points. And we have to remember, Colorado is a former swing state. And now it's kind of in the wilderness, quite purple. I mean, you have people like him, but then you also you have Lauren Boebert. <laughs> Interestingly, Polis is kind of a left-wing libertarian, or at least he has kind of those tendencies. He was quite loose on enforcing mandates during COVID. I think that was meant to appeal to different parts of the population. 
But he also is kind of a pro-capitalist, but also pro-government type of guy where he actually checks a lot of my personal ideological boxes, I would say. And George Will, great conservative writer, has a really good piece in the Washington Post about Paulus and how he would probably be perfect to step in for Biden in 2024 if anything happened. Obviously, that's not happening. But I think the piece fits well for 2028 as well. Will writes at one point, the Colorado governor makes sense for many of the same reasons as Shapiro and Whitmer. He won re-election in November by, by nearly 20 points. Will writes later, after sailing through high school in three years, at 17, he arrived at Princeton, where as a sophomore, he and two friends founded an internet access company. He founded two other internet-related companies, sold all three for more than $1 billion. So I would say this is probably where his pro-capitalism stuff comes in. He, uh, he's very anti-trade war, which I liked. Is he, he's actually criticized Joe Biden for saying that day one of Biden's administration, he should have ended the tariffs on China, something I full-heartedly agree with. That's always been that's been a big criticism of mine of the Biden administration is that they've kept a lot of Trump's protectionist policies. And I am not a protectionist. Polis is an old school classical liberal when it comes to a lot of economics. And I quite like that. He also, before being governor, was elected to Congress in 2008. And he was kind of a big deal at the time because he was the first uh, gay uh, member of the House. I, the first. No, sorry. It was the first same sex parent in the House. I guess he has two children with his husband. Ten years later, he became the first openly gay man elected governor, which is interesting to me. He's just kind of all over the place in terms of like he's a he's kind of like a tech capitalist, kind of a libertarian on social issues, global into globalization, I guess you could say. And then he's also gay. So he checks all these interesting boxes here. He's a fascinating dude. I've seen some interviews with him. He was on Bill Maher about a year ago. Really good conversation. Yeah, he, he's pretty respectable. Also, again, one of the things that interests me is that he's delivered all day kindergarten, which is really good. He's also really fighting to switch Colorado to be completely reliant on renewable energy by 2040, which to me is a more rational goal than California's, which is like 2030. And he's also a big public school choice guy. And George Will writes, every child in his programs is guaranteed a place in a neighborhood school but can attend any school in the state. And I like that. It's kind of balancing because a lot of parents, especially after COVID, are into school choice. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. So I think you need to balance keeping a robust public education system while also giving parents choice. And he's dancing on that. I don't know how well it's going to work down the road. But it seems like he's another guy who is a leader for not just one person, but he's trying to do it for everyone. Again, much like Pete Buttigieg, he is gay. And so especially now with the don't say gay bill and all this groomer stuff and the Ron DeSantis stuff in Florida and just all the chaos of that, there is a lot more growing homophobia again on the right. So you wonder, will that trickle down and could that hurt him? But honestly, I don't know because he won by almost 20 points in re-election uh, back in November. So obviously that didn't hurt him too much there. Okay, we are finally at number one here, and let me pull up number one. Number one is Ro Khanna, and it's interesting because I don't consider myself like a populist left Bernie type of guy, but I've been a fan of Ro Khanna for a long time. And just some background, he did co-chair Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. They are close friends. 
He's been one of the guys who now has got a lot of shit because he wants Dianne Feinstein out. He's just saying it how it is, and he's being called sexist and all this other stuff. Not true. He just believes in democracy and keeping a 90-year-old who doesn't know where she is and to represent 20 million Californians is just insane. But anyways, he supports pretty significant populist economic reform, but where I like him is he has a reputation as a foreign policy hawk in Congress, and he also is willing to work with those who have opposing views on both the right and the left. And even though he's from Silicon Valley, he's not as much of the progressive I think a lot of people think he is, at least when it comes to like his own personal values. And one of his biggest things that really got me on board, I think it's about a year ago where I first was reading about this, he wants to bring STEM to other parts of the country and kind of create like a innovative green new deal but for the tech industry and he basically talks about how there is skill desire and drive for embracing the tech sector in places like kentucky and west virginia but basically the infrastructure and opportunities lacking and so he wants to kind of solve our meaning identity anger crises that are brewing in the united states by trying to instead of invest overseas invest in places like Kentucky and West Virginia and bring good manufacturing tech jobs to there. And there's an interview with The Guardian where Rokana discusses his perspective, and it's kind of his Silicon Valley perspective. He says in quotes, In my district, young people wake up optimistic about the future. There's $11 trillion in market value in the district and surrounding areas. But then he continues saying in quotes, but for working class Americans across the country, globalization is not working. It's meant jobs going over shores. It's, it means the shuttering of communities, and it's meant that their kids have to leave their hometowns. We need to figure out how to bring economic opportunity for the modern economy to those communities that have been left out. Much like Chris Murphy, Sherrod Brown, he's, he's not an elite he is an elite. He's wealthy, and he's, he's, he represents Silicon Valley. But he has an instinct that to move forward, we can't just say, oh, the MAGA middle America, they're all just racist, and they're out of touch, and they're stupid, and blah, blah, blah. Instead, he's like, no, there's a true disconnect that's happened in this country, and there's a lot of people that feel like they're not getting part of this global economic boom that we've seen. And they're mad about it. And he rightfully is saying, well, why don't we start investing in parts of the country where there's people that want to work, they want to stay where they're at, but the options are limited. And I think that's why he is, um, he, he's quite good. He's quite good. I, I mean, I, I wanted Dianne Feinstein to resign and I wanted him to run for the Senate, Senate seat. Maybe he will, but of course it's going to be like Adam Schiff, which is disappointing because as you guys know, I do not like Adam Schiff. Uh, I think Ro Khanna would be a much better senator for California. But as soon as Feinstein's gone, it does look like it's either going to be Adam Schiff or Katie Porter. Katie Porter's better than Adam Schiff, but Adam Schiff has the money. And so Ro Khanna, yeah. Ro Khanna is my number one Democrat on the bench. Fairly young. Um, I, think we'll, I, I think the sky's his limit, for sure. So anyways... That'll do it. Let me know your thoughts. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great rest of your Saturday. I'll see you when I see you.